0: Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 93, The June Coup. Last time, we covered the events in Eastern Europe, which were unforeseen consequences of Khrushchev's so-called secret speech. Hungary and Poland were in open revolt, which caused major consternation within the Soviet Union's presidium. While both revolts were crushed, Many of the members of the Presidium and the Central Committee were up in arms over what happened. By now, Khrushchev had developed a lot of enemies within the Presidium, mainly due to the secret speech which had outed the members who carried out Stalin's crimes. But there was another reason that would eventually lead to his downfall in 1964. It was his irrational and embarrassing behavior, as well as his continuing attack on the other members of the Presidium. Molotov, Voroshilov, and Kaganovich were oftentimes targeted by Nikita's tirades during Presidium meetings. Khrushchev believed that he needed to consolidate his power by degrading rivals in the eyes of the Central Committee, of course most of whom were appointed by Khrushchev himself. This was to prove crucial in his survival. Molotov and Malenkov were both out as foreign minister and prime minister, respectively, but they were still members of the presidium. Now, according to the written rules, the Central Committee was supposed to be the real power, and the presidium was there to give advice and guidance. But in reality, the Central Committee was just there as a rubber stamp for the more senior group above them. There were eleven presidium members in 1957 when the anti-Khrushchev forces began to plan their attack on the first secretary. Khrushchev was barnstorming around Russia in early 1957, as he was about to propose and then quickly implement a major decentralization of industrial and agricultural planning, along with an attempt to improve relationships with the intelligentsia, a group long suppressed under Stalin's regime. Khrushchev thought that this would improve his standing amongst the power brokers, but instead it almost cost him everything. His decentralization plan was incredibly radical in nature. Instead of planning everything through Moscow alone, Khrushchev created 105 councils to plan production quotas locally, but still answering to a greater overall plan. Nikita believed that this was the only way to achieve the goals he set when he boasted that the Soviet Union would, quote, be able by 1960 to catch up to the United States and per capita meat output. Now, the idea that they could achieve that in three years was totally absurd. They would have had to increase production threefold in that short period of time with no incentives. Khrushchev was widely criticized because of his unfettered belief in his plan, despite being warned by economists that it was impossible. Even though he was strongly warned, he admitted, I asked the economists to find out when we would be able to catch up with the United States and the foodstuffs I've mentioned. I will let you in on a secret. They gave me a piece of paper. They had signed it. They had even put their seal on it. It says on this piece of paper, if we can step up the output of meat 3.2 times, we can catch up with the United States in 1975. Excuse me, comrade economists, if I have hit a sore spot. Khrushchev agreed with the numbers, but being a real believer in Leninism-Stalinism, he felt that the Soviet people could overcome the odds. Quote, Sometimes man can exceed his own strength by making a sudden spurt. Let our opponents ponder what the working class can perform. We will successfully solve the task we have set for ourselves. Kaganovich responded years later, He came up to us afterward with the self-satisfied smile of a man who had invented a great idea. He further went on to say that when Khrushchev was confronted with the numbers submitted by The economists, he, quote, got mad, raising his little fist threateningly. But he couldn't refute Gosplan's figures. Alexei Kosygin, a Khrushchev ally at the time, said, Molotov spent a long time gathering materials to show that no one, not the party, not the people, not the agricultural leadership, not the peasantry, that no one was in a position to overtake the United States and output of meat. Khrushchev went international in his belief of the plan when he was interviewed on CBS News in the United States when he stated that if they miss the target by one year, we shall not be very upset and our people will not bear a grudge against the Central Committee of the Communist Party and the government. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, The goal had still not been met. When Khrushchev tried rapprochement with the literary liberal intelligentsia in May 1957, he embarrassed himself by putting down books that he admitted he had not read. At a party get-together outside Moscow, the leader got drunk and got into a shouting match with the author of *Literaturnaya Moskva, Margarita Alager. You're nothing but an ideological saboteur. You're a remnant of the capitalist West. The tiny, frail woman responded, What are you saying, Nikita Sergeyevich? I am a communist, a member of the party. You're lying. I have no faith in communists like you, Khrushchev replied. Describing his boorish behavior, Kaganovich stated, His speech wasn't transcribed. If it had been... No stenographer would have been able to follow it. Mikoyan recalled that after the writer's debacle, meetings at the Presidium became simply unbearable after the meeting with the writers. He had drawn the lines in the sand between himself and the majority of the members of the Presidium because of his erratic behavior. This was later to even extend to his strongest supporters. But not this time. Four men began to put together a plan for the coup against Khrushchev. Molotov, Kaganovich, Malenkov, and Voroshilov. The first three really despised each other, but they hated Nikita Sergeyevich even more. Quickly thereafter, Shepilov and Bulganin joined the group. This was not a group of raging intellectuals. Stalin had seen to that. Boris had felt slighted as Khrushchev kept calling him Little Pigeon. Bulganin constantly made major gaffes at international events while serving as foreign minister, such as equating Gandhi to Lenin at a reception in Calcutta, which made Nikita tremble with anger. Molotov and Kaganovich were the heavyweights, but had their personalities neutered by years of fear serving under Stalin. Others in the plot included Sabarov and Pervukin, who were both threatened by the decentralization plan as they were high-level bureaucrats. The game was on, and if Khrushchev didn't know it was on, he did after his son Sergei's wedding on June 16, 1957. It was custom for all the Presidian members to show up to the wedding of the son or daughter of a member and give them lavish gifts. At this wedding, the presents were cheap and not customary. Khrushchev then gave a speech, while slightly inebriated, which poked fun at Bulganin, which, according to Sergei, made him, quote, react with fury. He simply exploded. He started to shout that he wouldn't let anyone shut him up and order him around, and that all that was going to end soon. Zhukov noted in his biography that after the wedding, Molotov, Malenkov, Kaganovich, and Bulganin got up together and left the Dasha. According to a former aide to Khrushchev, Pyotr Demichev, Nikita knew something was up. Quote, Who told him his heart to say? But he must have felt it as early as May first. When party activists gathered at a dacha outside the city, and when Bulganin was the formal host, the anti-Khrushchev mood was obvious. Khrushchev had to have detected it. After all, he was a sensitive man. On June 18th, a meeting of the Council of Ministers was called, and Khrushchev was summoned by Bulganin. Nikita hesitated, but went anyway. Malenkov demanded that Bulganin and not Khrushchev chair the meeting. The following is how William Taubman in his biography of Khrushchev describes the meeting. With Bulganin in the chair, itself a de facto demotion for Khrushchev, his foes launched into a scathing indictment. Malenkov recounted error after error. Voroshilov called Khrushchev unbearable and demanded his removal as party leader. Kaganovich linked Khrushchev's insistence on re-examining 30s show trials with his dalliance with Trotskyism in 1923. Others' cows may moo, but yours should stay silent, snapped Kaganovich, prompting Khrushchev to sputter. What are you hinting at? I won't take it anymore. Molotov joined the assault. Bulganin and Peruvkin piled on. According to Kaganovich, Mikoyan tried to restrain Khrushchev and partly succeeded. Although Khrushchev rejected most accusations, he accepted a few and even promised to correct his mistakes. Stalling, he and Mikoyan demanded delay until all full and candidate members and all central committee secretaries were present. They got that adjournment until the next day. However, Khrushchev was reeling. When he arrived that evening at a Bulgarian embassy reception, he looked preoccupied, even depressed. Usually ebullient on such occasions, this time he was gloomy and silent. That evening, the Ukrainian party chief, Kirichenko prepared his boss for seemingly certain defeat. So you'll live in Ukraine. You'll have a home in dacha. Khrushchev aide Andrey Shevchenko recalled, he was shaking. He was distraught. Others found him weeping. Zhukov later wrote that Khrushchev begged him to save the day, promising that if he did so, I will never forget you. Now the next day, Khrushchev began to fight back with his cadre of backers, led by Zhukov, Kirachenko, Fertseva, Burezhnev, and Mikoyan. He had phoned Bulganin saying, Come to your senses, my friend. Get back on the right track. They've pulled you into this group for their own reasons. Leave them alone. Malenkov, sensing Bulganin's wavering, told him, Nikolai, Hold yourself together. Be a man. Don't give in. With both Bulganin and Khrushchev went for the chairman's seat. A vote of seven to four gave the seat to Bulganin. This represented all of the full members of the Presidium. Candidate members like Shevernik and Zhukov were not allowed to vote. Had they, Khrushchev would have had a thirteen to seven majority. Backroom bargaining began in earnest that evening, which caused the Seven, now called anti-party group, to begin to retreat from their staunch position that Khrushchev be removed completely from power. Zhukov began to use his military muscle by having air force planes fly all over the Soviet Union, bringing to Moscow all the local secretaries, who were, for the most part, Khrushchev's by June 20th, there were 107 out of 130, 130 Central Party Committee full members in Moscow. They sent the Presidium a petition, which was presented by Marshals Konev and Moskolenko, which meant that the military was now behind Khrushchev. The anti-party group now knew the gig was up. Voroshilov met one of the petitioners and said, Are we supposed to give... An explanation to you, boy? First you'd better learn to wear long pants. It was Voroshilov's last stance as party leader. The presidium was forced to accept that a party plenum be held on June 22nd. The plenum lasted for six days. It was the most extraordinary one ever held, as it went beyond the secret speech, as it named Molotov. Malenkov and Kaganovich as perpetrators of the crimes that were committed under Stalin. But it was Zhukov, not Khrushchev, who laid into the members in attendance. If only the people had known that these leaders' hands were dripping with blood, Zhukov said, they would have greeted them not with applause, but with stones. Others, too, former members of the Politburo, were guilty. I assume, comrades, that you know whom I'm talking about, but you also know these comrades have earned the trust of the Central Committee and of the whole party with their honest work and their straightforwardness. I'm sure for that, as well as for their candid confessions, we will continue to recognize them as leaders. According to Talman, Khrushchev was the subject of these last lines. Zhukov first accused him and then in effect pardoned him. Khrushchev must have been stunned and frightened as well. Accusatory words went back and forth between the anti party group and those supporting Khrushchev, but the end game was now in play. Bulganin, Sabarov, and Pervukin begged for mercy. Kaganovich and Malenkov began to see the futility and resistance. Molotov alone stood firm in his defiance. The one time in his life he truly stood up for himself. Shepalov laid into Khrushchev, but Mikoyan came to his defense saying that, yes, Nikita was hot-headed, hasty, and too sharp-tongued, but that it came from the heart not any intrigues. When Khrushchev went after Molotov for a note that he had wrote, written on the rejection of a plea of leniency by General Yakir in 1938, which read a perfect description under the comment of Stalin that had called the general a scoundrel and prostitute, he really laid into the former second in command, quote, Stalin didn't dictate those to you. You wanted to please Stalin to show him how vigilant you were. You sent innocent people to death with taunts and a smirk. The mothers, wives, and children who remained alive shed a sea of tears. Many relatives now asked to see photographs of husbands and fathers whose pictures they had to destroy. How can you look them in the eye? Now, this was their equivalent to the Nuremberg trials after World War II, but with a difference. No charges were filed, and no one executed for their crimes, because almost everyone in the room, including Zhukov and Khrushchev, were as guilty as anyone in the anti-party group. According to future premier Alexei Kosygin, many backed Khrushchev not because he was the best man for the job, but that they feared Molotov and his faction because, quote, blood would have flowed again. As opposed to the execution of Beria and the murders by Stalin of all his opponents, the men who led the anti-party group were not even ousted from the Communist Party at that time. Molotov was made ambassador to, of all places, Mongolia. Malenkov was made the director of a hydroelectric plant in Kazakhstan, Kaganovich was made the director of a small potassium plant in the Urals, and Shepalov became the head of economics institute of the local Academy of Sciences in Kyrgyzstan. In short, they were exiled, but not cut off completely. That would come in 1961 when they were all expelled from the Communist Party during anti-Stalinist purge. Now, with his power complete. Khrushchev began to look at the outside world and began to flex the muscles of the Soviet Union to promote the expansion of socialism and communism. Join me next time as we follow Khrushchev as he presides over worsening relations with communist China and makes decisions that would bring the world to the brink of war in Berlin and the Cuba Missile Crisis. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please help me out by rating this podcast on iTunes so I can move up the history podcast list. Also, don't forget to join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast Group, which is really growing and getting really exciting. Some fantastic links and information that you guys have been sharing with me, which I really appreciate it. And there you can always ask a question, make a suggestion, or leave a comment. So, as always, до И спасибо большое.